Well, let's read from God's Word, then we're going to sing, and then, children, you can follow your leaders out. But let's read first. And Bookie is going to read for us. And you can be turning to Ephesians and chapter 3. So today's reading is from um, Ephesians chapter 3, beginning to read from verse 14. Prayer for spiritual strength. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. It's lovely to be here in Black Rock. Thank you for the warm welcome that I've already received, and uh, on behalf of Claire as well. And I want to send greetings from my home church. I'm from Belfast, if you haven't already grasped that from my accent. Um, My church is a little church in East Belfast called Mount Pottinger Baptist, and they told me to send their greetings this morning. So we're looking at the book of Ephesians, a letter that Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, and thank you for the reading that we've had already. There's a word in verse 16, begins with P, and I realize that sometimes where I'm from, we forget that it has two syllables, so I would pronounce that word power, but for today I'm going to call it power, okay, which feels a little bit strange for me. But psychologists have defined power as one's capacity to alter another person's condition or state of mind by providing or withholding resources. And usually people want power to control or dominate others. But today we're going to see that the Apostle Paul prays for a very different kind of power, for all of God's people. He prays not that we may have the capacity to alter someone's condition by providing resources, but that God's spirit would control us and provide us with the power that we need to grow in faith and knowledge. And in these verses, we have the second of two um, prayers that Paul makes for this Ephesian church. The first is back in chapter one, And by the way, you'll see that verse 14 that we had read to us begins with for this reason. And if you look back, the start of chapter 3 begins for this reason. And you keep asking yourself, what reason, what reason? But you have to keep tracing back through this letter. You get to chapter 1, verse 15, and again you read for this reason. This whole letter is good to read as a whole, and I'd recommend that. But in chapter 1, Paul prays that the believers may be enlightened, that they would know the wisdom of God, the hope of his calling for them, and the glory of God's inheritance in the saints. And in this second prayer, he's not really praying so much for their enlightenment, but for their empowerment. Twice he will mention the power of the believer that Christ works within us. The church has a primary purpose for existence. The reason for which Christ died for us is what? Well, primarily it's to worship God 
and to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them what Christ commanded. And if we are to reveal the mystery of God's will, that he has made a way for all men, women, children, from every tongue and tribe and nation to come to him for salvation through the outpouring of his blood on the cross, if we are to make that good news known to the world, we absolutely need God to answer Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3. The prayer that we would have the Spirit powerfully working in and through us so that we grow in faith, but also power to have a deeper grasp of the immeasurable love of our triune God. That's why he's praying to the Father for the strengthening of the Spirit so that Christ would deeply inhabit these believers' lives. And Paul, by the way, is praying in a kneeling position. He's kneeling in a prison cell. What's he praying for in a prison cell in his own hour of need? Is he asking for more food and water, more rations maybe for his time in prison, or longer leisure breaks to be allowed out of his cell, maybe some air freshener, more visits from his friends? None of these things. Paul is praying for the church to grow in faith and to know the love of Christ more deeply. It's a beautiful, selfless prayer. And we're going to look at his two prayer requests as I see them. But even before we get into that, notice the posture of his prayer, first of all, in verse 14. He's kneeling in submission before his Father. And there's an emphasis throughout the letter to the Ephesians on posture. But it's not so much physical stance as spiritual posture that Paul's concerned with. If you look back in chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, we are described as previously being dead in our sins when we walked in accordance with the world. So we were flatlining, spiritually speaking. In chapter 2, verse 6, we're raised up, and now we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And because of this new spiritual position in Christ, we can walk in a way that pleases him. We see that word twice in chapter 4 thrice in chapter 5, and then finally in chapter 6, from verse 10, Paul demonstrates how we ought to stand against the devil. And if we are to adopt the correct spiritual posture, we always must begin by kneeling in submission before God the Father. That would symbolize a willingness to submit to God's authority and will over our lives. So all of our requests, Every request that we make to God is to be done with Jesus' instruction at the forefront. What was his instruction? Father in heaven, let your will be done. That is to be our greatest desire, and it should govern any other desire that we have. Whether we're praying for ourselves or for others, we do so with faith that God will do what is right and that he will bring glory to his name as his will is made complete. Practically speaking, that can be very difficult for us if we're Christians and we pray for God to change the hearts and minds of people in this world when it seems like God is giving people over to their wickedness as they reject his authority. When we think about things that happen in the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, when we think about our increasingly secular education system or woke political agendas, people that despise the truth, 
And yet we've been asking God to change things. We've been asking God to turn the hearts of mankind back to their maker. Sometimes we struggle with God's perfect timing because we want everything to happen the way it seems right in our heads according to our timing. And Paul knew that his spiritual family in Ephesus were frustrated. In verse 13 of our passage, he asks them not to lose heart at his tribulations. Their beloved apostle and friend was in chains, and they didn't know how things were going to turn out for him. Was he going to be released? Will they ever see him again, or would he actually be sentenced to death? They were fearful, but Paul wasn't fearful. In chapter 4, verse 1, we see that he was a prisoner for the Lord. In Philippians 1.13, he tells us he was in chains for Christ. So he's not afraid. And yet, he doesn't tell them to stop praying for God to act, just to pray according to that posture of submission. So that's the posture he adopts. But look at the God he approaches in verses 14 and 15. We come before a father, the father in heaven, because if you're in Christ, he has adopted you as a son or a daughter. And like the little girl who repeatedly pleads with her dad to lift her up and put her on his knee and nurse her, and he patiently, lovingly grants that plea, we too know that our father will not turn us away if we come before him in faith and we plead with him with our needs and our requests. Psalm 34 verse 15 promises, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Our father does not ignore us when we plea with him. He hears us and he calls us to call on him again and again. Jesus exhorted his disciples to pray and not lose heart like a persistent widow that he spoke of in his parable in Luke 18. She kept pleading with a judge for legal protection, and eventually he granted it. But our Father is infinitely greater. He knows what we want, but he also knows what we need, even before we do, before we ask. And Paul says that God is the Father from whom every family on heaven and earth derives its name. The one who names you is the one you belong to. Your earthly parents give you a name, thereby showing that you're from them, that you're their child. So too, our heavenly Father names those who belong to him. So Yahweh, Paul is saying, is the father of all fathers, the father of all families. And he's the only perfect father, the archetype, the father we can trust completely to do what is right and good for us. And he loves us in a way no one else can. So with the knowledge of how we come before our Father and who he is and how he loves us, let's just look closely at two things Paul prayed for. Number one, power to increase in faith in Christ. Verse 16 and 17a. Whenever two people come to uh, get married and then they move into a house together, they seek to make that house a home to live in. For me, when I married Claire five years ago, that meant that my Chicago Blackhawks ice hockey painting couldn't stay on the wall. Okay? In, my, in my family home, that's where it was. And by the way, she painted it for me. But no, I wasn't allowed it. Nor was I allowed to set up my drum kit in the bedroom. These things had to change. 
When you submit to Christ as Lord in your life, we're told that he takes up residence within us by his spirit. And he doesn't leave. For God cannot deny his faithfulness. As Paul wrote to another church in Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we no longer live for ourselves. Christ is our master. And now Christ already dwelt in these believers, but Paul is praying for a deeper experience of that indwelling. Spiritually speaking, Paul is desiring for them to be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in them from the moment they're saved, but they've been empowered to do something, according to verse 17, that Christ may dwell, and it's an, it's an internal dwelling. It means to settle or to reside, and it's a continual permanent habitation. This inner person or hidden person It's not the part of us that people can see with their eyes, but it is the part that God looks at with a particular interest. Because the Bible tells us that God's eyes, metaphorically speaking, it sees inside us, even cutting through that religious veneer that sometimes we have on the outside. And so Paul's praying that the Ephesians would be suitable homes, that inwardly Christ would dwell in them and that they would continue to be transformed inwardly day by day. And you'll notice that this prayer he prays is entirely dependent on one source, God and the riches of his glory. God was the source of their faith and their salvation and their future glorification, so he must be the source of their and our daily sanctification. Now, lest any of us doubt that God is not gracious enough or able to grant this request that we too be inwardly transformed day by day. Notice that Paul prays according to the riches of God's glory. We pause for a moment and just consider what those words actually mean. There's another translation that puts it this way, from his glorious unlimited resources. The riches of God's glory cannot be contained or quantified or calculated, and I think that's his point. God's glory fills the heavens, and the whole earth is full of his glory. But heaven and earth cannot contain God's glory. When Job tried to contend with the knowledge of God, he was overwhelmed, and he said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand over my mouth. He was dumbstruck, literally. And that is the human response when we fully encounter something of God's glory. And so it should be. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it, David said. But the limitlessness of God is not something we should be afraid of, though a holy fear is important. Instead, it should comfort us. We should be comforted because our our glorious God, our all-powerful God, is also a gracious God. And we trust, as Paul did, that he will answer according to his limitless um, riches of glory and that his will would be done. It's obvious that Paul believes God's going to answer this prayer for the believers to be strengthened in faith. Because he knows that whenever someone's capacity to glorify God increases, so does their faith and vice versa. 
Christ declared to his father in John 17, 4, I glorified you on earth. That was Jesus' food and drink, to glorify the Father. And it's also the Spirit's role. He glorifies the Son, the chapter previous in John 16. Jesus said he would send the Spirit to reside within the faithful. And he would glorify me, Jesus said. So if our inner being is being strengthened by the Spirit through faith, we will also glorify God in a greater measure. That's our chief purpose. It's knowing this that gives us hope. And we know this because 2 Corinthians 3 tells us what is going on day by day by the Holy Spirit is this. We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Knowing that Christ dwells in you is the very hope of glory. Christ's presence with us now is our security and hope for the future. But how does that knowledge um, of this reality, how does that change our day-to-day experience? Well, I'll give you a personal anecdote to try to illustrate this truth. I have no experience in DIY. And last year, between... uh, one year of college in the second, I had a long summer and I decided that I would work for a furniture company building office furniture. And as I said, I have no DIY experience. So fairly useless to be honest. And I was really scared whenever I was given a task. For example, I'd be told, I'm gonna be in this office, you go downstairs, build all the desks in that office. And one particular desk, I'd only seen it built once before. So I was terrified. But on the times when my colleague, who was experienced, when he came with me and he oversaw everything that I was doing, I felt reassured. Paul's saying that Christ is in our hearts through faith and that he's promised that his spirit is with us too and that he would be our helper. We have the spirit of God as our helper, which means all of our efforts to please God, to serve the church, to grow in personal holiness, even to know how to pray according to God's will, all of those efforts are not solo efforts. We have someone not just overseeing our work, but doing the work within us and through us. We're never alone in the battle. And that's the first thing Paul prays for. But the second is that there would be power to increase in knowledge of Christ's love, verses 17 to 19. It says that we are rooted and grounded in love. Paul's confident that that's already the case for these believers, but he knows that the more they grasp God's love for them, the deeper their roots will be. A tree's roots must provide stability. It needs to be deep enough to do that because the roots are going to nourish the plant. They're going to provide it with everything that it needs to grow. And so the plant needs to continually draw on that nourishment from the root for its sustenance. Then he uses an architectural image of this grinding work that's foundations. And it's absolutely necessary for any good building to have a strong, firm, and reliable foundation for it to be built on. The love of God takes root in us because God has bestowed his love upon us when he saved us. 
He gave us a new love for himself that we didn't previously have, and he took away the love that we have for the world, and we pray that he's continuing to do that. But the foundations have been laid. There's more work to be done, not for their salvation. That's a once and for all act. But again, they want to grow up in their love and faith. This is the same word, this grounding. It's the same word that Jesus used when he spoke about the wise builder who built on a strong foundation. A properly grounded love is unshakable. It's only when we're thoroughly entrenched in the love of Father, Son, and Spirit that we will be able to comprehend the vastness of his love for us. And yet we also read here that it's so wide-reaching that we'll never fully comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love for us. Those four words are measurements that are there to really emphasize how immeasurable God's love truly is. But I find Richard Koken's comment helpful. He says that the width illustrates God's accepting love, the length, his lasting love, the height, his exalting love, and the depth, his sacrificial love. God's love is so wide because he has already removed any barriers that there were to it. Even in Ephesians 2.17, it says he preached peace to you who were far away. We've been brought near. It's so long a love because it's not like our fickle love that waxes and wanes whenever our feelings are hurt or we're disappointed with people. It's a love that never ceases. It's a love that's so high that we have actually been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. And it's so deep a love that Christ gave himself up for us, even through the humiliating death on a cross, that shameful death by crucifixion. Such love, who can explain it? Preachers and writers and hymn writers and, and singers have been trying to explain and, and describe this love forever, and they'll never fully be able to do it because it's a love, we're told, that surpasses knowledge. So why does Paul pray that these Ephesian believers will know this love that surpasses knowledge? How can you possibly know the unknowable? Well, it's not that we may know it intellectually. That's more of an emphasis in Paul's first prayer. There he prays that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So of course we can know that God's love is with us. We can know that in our minds, but we can easily forget it or we can ignore it or lose the wonder of it if our hearts are not constantly comprehending what it means for us. This love is something that we do experience every day. And that's the case whether you know God personally, you've repented of your sins and you've come to him and asked him to forgive you and you've trusted in his once and for all finished work on the cross for you, you still experience God's love. Every day he shows his common grace to you as he sustains life on earth. But we experience God's love as Christians in a unique way. We do so as the spirit ministers to us from his word. We do so in prayer together as we have fellowship with other believers at the Lord's Supper, through baptism, and as we're taught from Scripture. 
But we see God's love for us that surpasses all knowledge. Supremely, we see that in Christ's life, ministry, death, resurrection, and even his intercession as he continues to pray for us. But we'll never fully comprehend the measurelessness of Christ's love. Eternity with God will not exhaust his capacity of love for us. So finally, just notice that Paul's prayer for these believers is that they will be filled with all the fullness of God. And that's a continual filling, that it's they, would, they would keep being filled. But God needs to do that filling, according to Paul's prayer. So what does this actually mean? As I said before, we're filled with the Spirit from day one when Christ saves us. And we are sealed by his Spirit. That's our seal of an authentic adoption as sons and daughters of God. But we need to grow spiritually, and this is determined by what we fill our minds with. Not with earthly things like an obsession with money and cars, salaries, jobs, big houses, social media popularity. Those things can't actually fill us. They'll never be enough. And they're not inherently evil things, by the way. God does not condemn the rich. But obsession with them, materialism, that belongs to the old way of life. Paul will explain in the following chapter that we are being renewed by the Spirit and we're to put on a new way of life created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And if all of that, righteousness and holiness, and everything else that I've said about growing day by day, if that seems impossible, it is if not for God's power within us. And we rest in the promise of verse 20. God accomplishes all of this in us. He answers the prayer according to his power that is at work within us. The very power of the all-powerful God is in his children, and he empowers us to serve him and please him. Strengthened with spiritual power, indwelt by Christ through faith, rooted and grounded in love, instructed in the immeasurable love of God. Paul's just praying, really, that the church, and that includes us, would have power to experience God's grace, in verse 16, faith to believe that it's a reality, in verse 17, love to express it, in verse 18, and knowledge to know it deeper, in verse 19, and all of that to the glory of God. And so I close with, verse 20 onwards. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.